Support for Best of Belfast comes from listeners just like me who love Northern Ireland and believe we have a better story to tell. Massive thanks to all of you listening who have already joined the Producers Club, especially our Titanic producers, Barclays Eagle Labs, Ulster University, Young Enterprise Northern Ireland, Gavin Wall, Peter Dixon and of course the Ormobiles team. To find out more about how you can support independent ad-free media, get invitations to live podcasts and submit questions to our guests, please visit bestofbelfast.org. Thanks so much and we really hope you enjoy today's show. Hello folks, how are you? Hope you're doing very, very well. Welcome to another episode of Best of Belfast. This is the podcast that celebrates Northern Ireland and the incredible people in it. Have an absolute treat for you today. Uh, A really, really surprising little conversation that we had probably about a month or two ago. It was recorded as a bonus episode for our documentary that we just released about Lillian Bland. If you haven't checked that out, I highly recommend going back to last week's episode. It's a kind of highly produced, edited documentary story all about a woman called Lillian Bland, who was the first woman in the world, and I underscore the in the world part, to design, build, and fly her own airplane. Crazy, crazy story. She did it on the outer hills of North Belfast, that car money, Glen Gormley direction. She did it in 1910. You know, Amelia Earhart, the famous aviator, she was something like 12 years old at the time. Uh, So just a really interesting person from the pages of our local history that I had no idea about until we did the documentary about her. And so if that sounds up your street, I highly recommend you checking out that episode too. But today we have uh, a more modern uh, present day story of someone who is incredibly good with their hands, somebody who is a tinkerer by nature, and somebody who actually uh, built his own airplane in his garage. Not only did he build it, he also flew it. And not only did he build and fly it, and this, this is the savviest part of it all, he also flipped the profit when he sold it. So really interesting story. Uh, you're going to absolutely love hearing from Frank Morris. It's a very casual, free-flowing sort of conversation. We weave in and out of his early childhood, his first memories, how he got into fixing stuff, life growing up on the quote-unquote farm, you know, buying his first car for £10, learning how to fix it up, swapping cars, building radios, and all this amazing stuff uh, that ultimately led him to building the airplane. Another thing I love about Frank's story is the fact that he did all this alongside holding down a steady full-time job. He worked for BT for many years. He worked for the post office for many years. And uh, I think he's just a really great example of many people in Northern Ireland who make things. Whether it's, uh, you know, your mate that's building a a dining room table in a shed or whether it's someone who has this fascinating, intricate little device that they've been working on for years. There's a lot of people like that out there. And uh, we felt like it was a good idea alongside Lillian's documentary going out to um, share Frank's story as well and as always we are jumping off uh, where we usually try to jump off that is with today's guests first memory enjoy um both grandfathers were living at the time and one was he had been in he was from Dublin had been in the British army fought in the Boer War and 
he interested me in radio, started, showed me how to build a crystal set. And uh, that started off, I would had to build a better crystal set than he had, etc. <laughs> and, um, you know, that was, and it, I wasn't even realizing I was being influenced. Then when I was seven, we moved to live at what we called a farm. It was really a small holding. My other grandfather there, he did everything by hand. Uh, sheds had to be built, concrete shells. He, he built them. If I remember project that he did, he didn't call it a project either. It was a necessity, <laughs> was rebuilding his wheelbarrow, mm. including the wheel, every single bit of it. There's only goodness. two bits that I remember that he couldn't make. One was the metal rim around the wheel mm -hmm. and the other was the center axle. But everything else, the spokes, the sections of the wheels, everything he carved and did. So that had a an impact. I thought, God, how does he do that? You know, that sort of thing. And yeah. then my father was a mechanic. Oh, wow. And uh, I would have helped. I had one sister and one brother and I would have helped my father when he was working at cars. We just, you know, I, I did that. My brother had no interest in doing that whatsoever. And then years later, I bought my first car out of a scrapyard, <laughs> 10 pound. <laughs> Tanner, flip me. And spent uh, about a month uh, getting the mark of the telephone pole out of the front. <laughs> it was like that. And uh, I needed some welding done on it. And I couldn't weld at that point myself. Didn't have the gear or anything. So what I did, I was I brought it to a garage of a friend. His brother worked in it. And when I was there, he fancied my first car was a Mark One console, Ford console. He fancied that. And he did a direct swap with me for his mm -hmm. car, which was uh, an Austin AS70. Massive blooming thing. And... Uh, so I drove that for a number of years. Plus. And, you know, so that was, they were always interested in doing stuff like that, mm -hmm. you know? So. Yeah, yeah. Tight-knit family? Yeah, pretty much. Um, as I say, well, I mentioned I had one brother. I had actually had two brothers and a sister. But Paul, the youngest, died young. Wow. And he never actually developed, you know, in that sort of way. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, <clears throat> that's... We do. We, my brother and myself, up until the coronavirus stuff, yeah. we would regularly go for a pint Friday or Saturday or mm -hmm. something like that, you know. Mm -hmm. And uh, my sister lives in Balamina, and uh, we're back and forward there all the time. It's great. Yeah. No, I only ask because it sounds like you had quite a lot of older men sort of showing you the ropes to various things. Oh, yeah. Which is nowadays not as common as it would have been if you no. talk about historically and blacksmiths pack, passing on the trade and all yeah. this sort of thing, you know? Yeah. So, uh, no, that was my recollection. Been on a farm, inverted commas, <laughs> uh, you, you had a, I realized you had to do everything. Mm -hmm. So I started rearing hens myself and uh, I had my own and my mother had he had, she had her hands <laughs> and I had mine and um, my grandfather were, had his. Were you in competition with them as well? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> pretty much. Yeah. So what's yeah. the metric of competition when it comes to rearing hands? Are you looking for, you know, egg production? Are you looking for size of bird? What are you what are you talking about? Well I here? was I wasn't really interested in that. I was interested in the various breeds of mm -hmm. hens, including the bantam hens, you know, the small ones. 
And uh, that was just, you know, it, it just seemed natural to do that. You yeah, know? yeah. So, and I also was interested in the orchard. We had an orchard and I <clears throat> took a section of the orchard and grew my own plants, you know. Amazing. So, what was um, one of your greatest adventures or, you know, one of your highlights um, of your time in that uh, big, relatively sounds beat up first car that you had? Oh, God. Well, uh, not so much the first car because it wasn't really roadworthy. There was no MOT then, remember? Yeah. So other than driving it home from the scrapyard yeah. and driving it to the garage to be welded, that's the only driving I did in that car. Yeah, yeah. And But the AS70 that I traded it yeah, for. Yeah, the swapped car. Oh, it was a tank. <laughs> uh, made, it literally had an early sunroof, which was all metal. Wow. Wed a ton. And the guys that I was running about with, I'd be driving the car, and the two of them would be standing up with their heads out through the, <laughs> through the top of that, you know. And I discovered it had a, a fault. Oh? Yep. Uh, the brakes would fail. Mm, great, great feature to have. Yep. <laughs> yep. And uh, it took me a good while to figure out uh, and get that fixed. Mm -hmm. But I did. I asked my father. I went to the, the font of knowledge, you know. So uh, so what I figured was this friend of mine had sold me a car who's, uh, who, and he knew the brakes weren't right. Oh, man. Some friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> People do anything for a car. Well, Exactly. But uh, no, I, I, I thought it was great, uh, you know, because you could go to dances in Belfast and mm -hmm. uh, all over the place. You weren't stuck to. Plus, at that time, we were starting a small group uh, and, uh, you know, conquer the world <laughs> knowing nothing about music or <laughs> so at all you know um so but we we got there we started to get doing bookings and all that sort of stuff and That's the car great. was useful for bringing the stuff you especially know especially because it was so big i imagine yeah, exactly mm. you know and there were just four of us in the in the actual group at that time it's great you know so why group and not band why that word um that's a good that's a good point well it wasn't big enough to be a band. Okay. You see, in, in those days, <laughs> a band that I, as I was, would know it, was at least maybe seven people. Okay. Because you had brass section. Yeah, you yeah, had, yeah, yeah, yeah. You had your drums, rhythm, lead guitar, and uh, probably three brass in it, you know, that type of thing. Yeah. So, um, and uh, usually the bands had a, a singer who was exclusively a singer, mm. where we were, I suppose, following patterns it was 1961 i think mm -hmm. that started and when were you born 50s uh 45 45 and uh yeah 74 now <laughs> <laughs> and uh the it was basically a, a conference i went when i was 18 my sister and her boyfriend took me to a dance in the parochial hall in armagh well, I thought I'd never heard anything like it in my life. Now, there weren't a, one of the pop big names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was um, the Johnny Murphy All-Stars. Great That name. was the name, you know. Love it. And they all had similar outfits on stage, but it was the noise they made. I just thought, that is fantastic, mm. you see? So that was the the gem or yeah. the germ of the idea, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, of course, other groups were starting to come along in England. You know, Searchers, all those sort of things. Beatles were a bit later. Um, all that, yeah. So 
what we were doing was we we actually hired a little hall at the back of a, of a cafe. Nice. And on a Tuesday night from seven to nine, we would have, we would play our music. Mm-hmm. And the kids could go to it because it was only two hours and they were finished at nine o'clock. <laughs> and we did that for some time. And then we were approached by another uh, hall outside Armagh. I think it was a Hibernian hall. We wanted to be tin Sh- uh, green sheds. Yes, what you would maybe see like an old gospel hall in. That's right, just yeah, yeah, like yeah. that. And they asked us to do the same thing on a Sunday uh, from four to six. So we did that as well. And we, on both instances, we have the door, whatever mm-hmm. was taken on the door, you see. So um, then I became aware of organizations like the Performing Rights Society <laughs> who wrote to the management of that little hall and uh, said that we didn't, they didn't have, the hall didn't have a license to oh, play music. Oh. Yep. And were threatened with all sorts of... Uh, Flip me. Yeah. So some years later, we never knew how, how the heck did they know about us out in the arts of, excuse me, the backside of nowhere. <laughs> and uh, how did they know about us? Yeah. And I was in another band. Uh, this was a band. And uh, the, it... Uh, the lead guitar in it I wasn't playing lead then I was a singer and rhythm and he he started telling me about what his father had done his father had had a show band mm-hmm. and he wanted to get this slot that we were doing wow right so he when the, the committee told him no no way he then informed the performing rights society bonkers you know so and he didn't realize that he was telling me that and I was part of the group. That, you know? so. That's brilliant. So um, kind of two two questions for you. Uh, what's the furthest this car took you? And when did it die? Well, it didn't die uh, because I went anywhere right. all, all good legends never die. They live on. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, I'll tell you about that in a minute. But the, 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 the S70... Um, I traded that in against a Volkswagen Beetle. You're mad, mad for trading. Is that just barter economy, or what is that? <laughs> well, I thought that was pretty normal. You see, because yeah. that's what people mostly did. It 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 worked fine. And um, as I say, I traded in to buy a 1962 Volkswagen Beetle. It was about three or four year old at that stage. Nice, you know. So obviously, I was earning a bit of money. Then you see, I could afford yeah, yeah, yeah. the payments on it. But um, no, that's that was the end of it. the first car. I couldn't tell you the the registration of the second car, okay. but I can tell you the registration now. XTB one nine one was the was the first car that was the Ford console, which it did practically no driving in. But that that's why I'm so that's why I'm so attached to to this you know the idea of the first car because it is so. Monumental and all the stories mm. around that—they're mad. Like, like I remember my first car. I remember all the stuff we did in it, and it's just, you know, it, there's something about it, isn't it? I saw that car years later. The actual car. The actual car. <laughs> I was up at um, Belfast Castle, uh, and with a girlfriend. Yeah. And um, I saw this car pulling up behind us, and it rushed into the space behind us. Uh. I looked. And it was it. My goodness. That was it, you know. She wasn't impressed with that, but I was, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And was it good enough, Nick? Oh, yeah. Wow. Oh, yeah. Someone had, 
Yeah, it had eventually been all resprayed and everything, you know. But that was the first time I had seen it since I yeah, yeah. passed it on, swapped. Yeah. yeah. It's great. So, you know, you've already told us a bit of an interest in cars, a yeah. bit of an interest in, we'll, we'll, we'll kind of label it mechanical things. Yeah. Also interested in music. Yeah. What happened next so you got a job you started making a bit of money which is how you could afford your beetle payments mm -hmm. this kind of interest on the side did that continue the music and the tinkering for lack of a better word oh yes uh, they all sort of ran concurrent type of thing you know you're in and out of stuff uh, the early groups i made some of the amplification for <laughs> the group Brilliant. you know um in fact I was talking to a guy recently who was in the very early band and um, he he said that my problem was every time they said, we need to get a new PA, I'll make one. <laughs> you know, even um, I remember seeing a, a, a what I call it, a diagram of a, a reverb unit in the practical wireless or some of those. And uh, of course, that was it. I had to build one. And... Uh, it was, you know, it was just. I just took it for granted. That's what yeah, you yeah, did, yeah. you know. Yeah. So. Uh, and so, um, were you ever kind of formally trained, or are you more like a piano player that uh, plays by ear? Are you talking about music? Let's talk about building things. Right, building things. Um, well, as far as the electronics went, um, my father, the only course I could get close to our ma that they had a sort of electronics background was in Bessbrook. Okay. There was a, they ran a class there for radio amateurs, the radio amateurs. So I attended that for about two years, got all the exams and that. And my father drove me and another guy to that place one night a week, you know. Awesome. And then he would go and visit an aunt in the area and then pick me up and come home. And uh, I didn't really, I mean, I just took that sort of thing for granted, mm. which I now realize was quite an effort on his part, yeah. you know, because he was working full time. Yeah. So uh, that gave me, I didn't do the uh, Morse code for the radio amateurs. All I wanted was the theory stuff, you see, and uh, what valves were doing and all that, you know, <laughs> thermionic valves in those days. No, there was, transistors were beginning to make an appearance. Yeah. But, uh, in a minor role. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so that was how I did that. The cars, that was really from my father. You know, I'd watch things he was doing. Um, and then I, I I got into a routine. I was driving a, a BT vehicle at that stage. It was home. I was on call 24-7 type of thing. And uh, they... Uh, what I was, um, I was on call and I started then, I would buy an old MGB sports car because you could buy them cheap in those days, yeah. right? I would buy those and I would uh, do it up. And then Gina, my wife, when her car was needing changed, I would give her the MG, <laughs> sell her car and buy another MG to do up. Brilliant. So there was always a, a you know a turnover of them yeah, type yeah, of yeah. thing you see, yeah. 
And that appealed to me for several reasons, but one was if you make a profit on your car, you're not taxed. Ah. See? Handy. Or your airplane, by the way. <laughs> so um, We'll get to that later. <laughs> yeah. So that, that was um, really, the, that's the way I was doing those, you know, and, yeah. and I was learning. Uh, I, I did take a, go to the tech and take a course in oxyacetylene welding. And what is oxyacetylene? Oxygen and acetylene gas, a mixture. You mix the two gas to, provide, to produce the flame. Oh, and yeah. you adjust that with the, up, the percentages of each. And um, it's, it's, it's quite a, a good way of doing car repairs. But I later went on in the, with the aircraft welding. I trained at Belfast Tech, what we call it, just round from uh, <laughs> Millfield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I did a course there for TIG welding. Tungsten inert gas welding, which is like a mixture of electric welding and oxyacetylene. Because what you do is you have a tungsten filament, or, you know, uh, tip, and with it's shielded with uh, pure shield argon gas. And when you actually strike a, a spark, it forms a, a flame. Wow. But it's very controllable. Yeah, and it doesn't spread over a very wide area. It's a small heat effect zone, you know. What keeps it contained? Um, the, well, the nozzle that you put that the air is driven down through shapes the for, the form of the yeah. flame. If yeah, you know yeah, what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And you're actually welding at about that distance from the material. Gotcha. You know, so you're using a filler rod as you would with oxygen and acetylene, mm -hmm. and you're but you're using the electric to generate the Flame. Yeah. You know, so. It's great. So that was. How did you meet Gina? Oh, well, I sort of grew up. Gina lived, our family lived about, oh, no more than about a mile and a half from where I was, at the farm. And In inverted commas. <laughs> yeah, yes. And um, they, I would have met her when we were young because of my, one of my friends, there were two friends, Joe and Noel, that I met the first day in school. Yeah. And we were friends from then on. Wow. And um, Joe died a couple of years ago. Noel's still living. And uh, and I'm, as you can dig, I'm still here. <laughs> and uh, they, so Gina was uh, friendly with his sisters. Yeah. Right. So, we would have given them uh, lifts to dances and stuff like that there. And, um, yeah, it, it was, and I hadn't seen her for a long time because I'd been playing dances more or less in the south of Ireland, you know. And uh, I had a Sunday night off and I went to the Brokill Hall, the old Brokill Hall that I'd gone to first of all. <laughs> and uh, Gina was there and I asked her to dance and uh, that was it. The rest is history. The rest is history. Love it. I was, that was a week before my, or a week after my 21st birthday. Fantastic. So, you know. And how long was it before you were married? About three years. Yeah, cool. And uh, were you working for BT at this point? I, I worked continuously for BT from 1960, end of 1962 until March 92. Wow. Almost 30 years. Yeah, that's a stint. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. But during that time, I mean, you got you got a chance. I could never understand some people at work. Uh, for example, if 
the, the boss went around looking for someone to volunteer for a, a project or a yeah. job. I was always going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> because the, most of my compatriots at that time, they were saying, they think I'm going to do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They got another thing coming to them. And yeah. I was thinking, this is a great opportunity. You know. Something different. There's something different, correct. So I, got I agree with you. I look at the guys that get, you know, the watches yeah. after, what is it? Is it 50 years you get a watch in some companies? I don't know what oh, it I don't is. Know what it was. And I think, whoa, how do these guys do it? But if you have an inbuilt mechanism that allows you to explore and be a bit creative and be oh, yeah. curious, then all more power to you. I got the opportunity to do things that I couldn't possibly have thought I would even get to do. Wow. I mean, I'll give me an example. And you even got paid for it. And I got paid for it. <laughs> um, I remember I was, they were changing from the old manual, not uh, auto manual exchanges, you know, the switches, dig, 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 round like that there. Yeah. They were changing from that, and there was an interim stage called TXE2. Okay which was still relays, but they're all read relays. Right. It's different, slightly different technology. And uh, I I didn't have the qualifications to get that grade at the time. So what I did was I went to night classes, first of all, and I did the first year at my own expense, and then I got their release to follow on. So I was forced into that by... Um, one of our bosses, an okay. assistant executive engineer, Derek Mateer. And Derek bullied me to go on to, because I had no particular design. I wasn't terribly good at school. Yeah, I got as far as my junior, and then I wouldn't go back to school. Sure. I just went and got a job. What was it about school that didn't do it for you? Uh, fear. Of? Uh, the teachers. Right. Yes. Cain? Uh, oh, yeah. Massively. And leathers and everything on the sun. From the first class you were in. You know, and it was it was slightly terrifying, really, yeah, sure. to be honest. And so your mind wasn't really on learning. It was avoiding trouble, mm. keeping out of trouble. I didn't manage to do that, by the way. But, uh, <laughs> that that was the that was the the driver. Yeah. So um, years later, when Derek eventually bullied me into going to night tech, and then he he oper- he got the course organized, and. Uh, then there you're going. Wow. No ch- no choice. And he... Why was he so pushy about it? I think he could see somebody wasting their time. Mm. Now, I thought I was doing a job that I would always love. Yeah. Yeah. But he saw beyond that, and I didn't. Wow. So That's I got that. a good manager, I tell you. Oh, yeah. Wow. He wasn't even my manager. That's wild. That's the point. That is wild. My boss wouldn't have Ever done that sort of stuff. Head down. But Derek, you know, was great. He was great. And he, I got, so I got the qualifications then, and then I became a technical officer just briefly because they then realized that this TXE2 technology was a passing phase into full digital. The bridge. So, the next thing I got called, I also had the qualifications at this time for inspector. Okay. So I went for an interview for as inspector and uh, I I got that. Brilliant. And that was, I got a posting in Portadown, just 10 miles from home. So that was good as well. But after about six years of doing that, um, I was outside watching, they bought this new 
piece of machinery mm-hmm. for erecting poles automatically type of thing. And uh, the, I had to go and write a report on it, uh, and it was chucking it down weather-wise. It was in South Armagh. <laughs> so I'm there in the rain all day. I came back into the office, and I could smell coffee, and I thought... This is more civilized than the here, you know? <laughs> Give me my desk back, lads. <laughs> yeah, so so I, the outcome of that was the boss, my boss just came out at that, at that time and he said to me, oh, Frankie, you'll not be interested in this. They want uh, someone on the project team in Belfast for this project. I can't remember what it was called now, the, total, the name of the project. But it was basically taking BT um in Northern Ireland, for example, we had 13 separate computer systems and uh, you were taking putting that in one huge computer system uh, and instead of like uh, standalone units in every department, mm. you had, it was a, a major, uh, what do you call it, <laughs> computer center, you know what I mean? Yeah, 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 they yeah. recruited specially for that, they built a wow. complete uh, system. Seymour House, which was an add-on to Churchill House in Belfast, not mm-hmm. that far from here, mm-hmm. was uh, that was the computer centre. So I wasn't. I was part of the implementation team. Yeah, and the, it was an American system, AT and T. Basically, what did they call it? the role I was doing was table builder. Okay, now, nobody knew what the table was. Sure, and so I was, you have your dinner on <laughs> exactly. So I spent the first three months. And that project, reading stuff that the person I was taking over from was feeding me. And after three months, I was no wiser. <laughs> and then I went to a meeting in London and I met a guy, Dave Milne from Glasgow. And he was the same, he was the same role, but he already was further advanced in it than I was. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So in the space of 20 minutes and a couple of, uh, what do you call them, napkins, he explained to me in very simple terms what my role was wow. and all I just clicked like that. So he gave you the theory that you needed maybe? Yeah. Wow. What I realized was that the person trying to tell me didn't actually know how the system worked. <laughs> that was why I couldn't grasp it. That's brilliant. You know what I'm so Dave, over a pint, got the whole thing. Brilliant. And after that, so we, we, we then discovered that there was a, a problem with the system. Uh, now, this system, to my knowledge, was working in a number of European countries. And it was supposed to give a real-time uh, information on performance. But when we ran tri- the first trial, it couldn't. Mm. You, got the, uh, you couldn't get it. The inf- and the information it was churning out was rubbish. Mm-hmm. So, um, And forgive me, but was this like, was this the type of computer that would, you know, print out a report? Oh, stacks of Reports from yeah, the reports really were, were labor, huge yeah. wow. uh, reports. And uh, you had to verify, you see, what you were doing, you were amalgamating 13 computer systems, usually two at a time link. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and the timing you took those at was crucial. When you took the extracts, that was crucial so that they, they would line up. Yeah. Right? And then we had to validate that all the uh, uh, numbers and uh, data and ex- uh, cash all tied up at the end of it and they did but then when we discovered when we did the second test that the reports of that had been fed in of jobs being done and all that gave rubbish information crazy so then i 
volunteered again. I was off to London to, to join a management information team mm-hmm. and spent I was about six or seven months in London. Crazy. You went on a Monday morning back on a Friday evening. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know? Yeah. And uh, So alongside all this, during this, you know, because this is a lot going on in your in your professional life. Yeah. What were you getting up to in the shed? In the shed? Assuming I still, you have I still, a shed. <laughs> I was shed. I did. I, I was working on, there was another project I car about. It was a two-door Daimler Coupe. Yeah. Uh, pillarless coupe, you know, the glass on the sides, yeah, no yeah, pillars yeah. and stuff like that. Yeah. And um, I suppose what I'm trying to figure out is how do I have time to do it? Well, that that goes, you know, that speaks for itself. That aside, what was the biggest thing you'd done before the airplane? Was that uh, Jaguar? Yeah. Or Daimler, because the, 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 Daimler and Jaguar were effectively the same company. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was, sometimes they called it Jaguar, but it was a Daimler actually. Yeah, yeah. And uh, the, the reason it was, I spent so long, I never saw a car was so rusted in my life. Really? But the guy I bought it off, uh, he had already started to work on it, and he had built this huge frame mm-hmm. to underpin every single key point in the car, on the side of the car. Because the car from about that about that height from the base up was rotten. Wow. Rotten. And uh, it was the time British Leyland were turning out Jaguars yeah. and Daimlers. And um, so that, if I if I had just taken, he had all the panels, yeah. repair panels. Yeah. And if I had just turned around and sold those repair panels, <laughs> I would have tripled my money. <laughs> you know? But I no, that wasn't good enough. I had to yeah. put the car back so uh, yeah. to to normal. Crazy, and uh, so that that was the biggest project yeah. before. Yeah. Okay, you know? so catch us up to speed. Then maybe we're jumping forward. Maybe we're not. But contextualize this in your own timeline. When did the thought of building a plane enter into your mind, and then why did you decide to actually give it a go? Well. I had started learning to fly in the early 70s and that's just flew off and on. And, um, and that's strictly hobby speaking. That was strictly hobby. Mm-hmm. And then um, what happened? Oh, yeah. Um, the next thing, you know, you have to get a, a medical every so often. And I got this medical which turned me down for the license. Oh. Right? Cardiac problem. Bummer. And... Uh, I don't think there was nothing wrong with me. So they, they made the Civil Aviation Authority made me go through all the hoops of yeah. having angio, an angiogram, you know, where they inject a, or a thing and die into your heart and watch. Yeah, yeah, the, yeah, yeah, yeah. So and they found nothing wrong. So the only thing at the end of months and months of investigation was you had slightly high blood pressure. Mm-hmm. So put me on a tablet for that. Right. And... I got my license back because, the, you know, there was nothing wrong. They yeah. said that was the gold standard in testing. So um, I then, I have to be careful here because I met a doctor who was an aviation medical examiner. Okay. Worked for a large aircraft company, uh, but I wouldn't like to name the... Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, we were both attending a quality meeting at that factory and uh, I was telling him about this and he said so basically 
you need uh, a, a clear angiogram to go back to the flight. I said, yeah. Let's go down to the medical center and have a look, see what they were talking about. <laughs> and he, he kept doing. Now, you see, this is, I wouldn't want this to come out to be perfectly honest because the man's dead and gone now. But yeah, yeah. Uh, he said to me, no, okay, now lean on your left side and expand your chest <laughs> and all this. And he would then run a trace. And eventually he got a trace that Brilliant. was okay. Brilliant. So I got, that was got my license back, you see. Yeah. And again, it at that time, because I wasn't 50, and before 50, the renewal time was four years, and mm -hmm. after 50, it was two years. Okay. But I got the four years spanning the 48 and 50. That gave you your own way as such. Give me your own with it. And he did the next Brilliant. thing as well, didn't he? Went through the same process. Yeah. So that was... That was how I got the thing back. And I started then seriously, because I had been looking over the years, I'd been looking at, I'd, I'd get flying magazines from an organization called the Popular Flying Association in England, which was to uh, push home-built aircraft and all that sort of stuff. And I also got the American one, the America, they were the Experimental Aircraft Association. It's very highly controlled in in the UK, but in England, They sort of are in America. They took the view that if you were stupid enough to buy something <laughs> or to build something and fly it and yeah. kill yourself, yeah. well, the world was a better place. More power to you. <laughs> well, that was the theory. <laughs> Freedom, yeah, that's the American word. Yeah. Yeah. So, but there wasn't a, a design, which was this one, the skyboat that I had seen, and it just looked right, flying attitude and everything. Yeah. So I started working on that. Could I possibly do that? And yeah, so, yeah, yeah. And that was what started. So um, I did... Uh, I sent for the plans. I mean, the, the this timeline there was a sort of uh, timeline. Can't remember. You had all sorts of things to do because I was determined that I was building this as per the Americans for everything specification. Because what happened, and I've seen this happen to a couple of people, if you bought American plans and used. UK materials to build them. Mm -hmm. The Civil Aviation Authority will always insist on if it was a sixteenth of an inch thick, yeah. you had to use an eighth. Right. So you were, and the crucial thing is weight on those planes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Keeping your weight down, right? So I saw uh, projects just crashing and burning from this sort of stuff. They couldn't; they were that heavy they couldn't get off the ground. So I bought everything from America. And I got an end user certificate for important aircraft parts, which was zero import duty. Mm -hmm. So, you know, that was one of the first things I did. I also wanted to weld the whole project myself. Mm -hmm. It was mar mostly welding. So I, the Popular Flying Association who oversaw all this, they weren't that happy about that. So the problem was I couldn't get a welder in Northern Ireland who could do it. Yeah. Because... Years ago, before this, anybody who worked in shorts who was welding for shorts, they were just doing this stuff for anybody. Yeah. When Bombardier took over, they said, whoa, 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 wait a minute. You don't have a license. Their welders were using the company license. Uh, and the company uh, checked them out every month or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every 30 days. And they said, look, if you do a job outside and you're using our license we are the people who will have to put up with any claim. Wow. So they put an embargo on all that. So it became I had to get 
the uh, the wedding license thing. Yeah, yeah. So I read up on it, the civil aviation books or websites and stuff, and I found out what had to happen. I had to produce samples that they, um, you know, uh, to their specifications, and they they had to go to. I had they had to have someone watching me doing that and indelibly marking the units. And then they had to go to a test house in England and there were uh, sections, some of them, and they, others they pulled apart. And the, the ones that they pulled apart, the tube had to break at at least half an inch away from the wells. Okay. If it broke out the well, then the well wasn't suitable. Yeah. All that sort of stuff. Yeah. So it was, it was great. And the problem was I couldn't get someone in Northern Ireland who could invigilate that because... Shorts wouldn't allow any of their people to do it. Sure. And they wouldn't let me go to Shorts and, and get it yeah, do yeah, it, yeah. even if I was going to pay them for it. Yeah. So I discovered a guy called Ken Barr. When I was, I did this course at uh, Millfield Tech to, to actually um, hone the skills to this TIG welding. And uh, Ken was attached to that thing. So he was a member of the Cambridge Welding Institute, and he was a he was also the AU uh, skilled guy to go wow. to in the case of you know an oil platforms and stuff like yeah, this here yeah, where there yeah. were disputes. So he used to be in there adjudicating that stuff like that. Wow! And he um, agreed he would do the invigilating for me. So <laughs> that was. When I, I made the samples up, he watched me doing it, marked yeah. them, and then we sent I sent them off when he was there and uh, to a test house that I'd rung in England and arranged Brilliant. with them. Brilliant. So that was, I got my license. That did for a year. Yeah. And after that, you had to renew it every year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that was. Sure. So what is Gina saying whenever her garage is all of a sudden full of this oh, discombobulated she airplane. Couldn't, she couldn't have been. Well, you see, it was a long time before it actually looked like an airplane. <laughs> it was you just know. theory for a long time, no, was it? No, but Gina was actually, she was. She encouraged me in the building it. Brilliant. Yeah, you know, she did. and uh, Which did surprise me a bit, but she did. She was totally behind me in doing this. Yeah. And that was probably because she didn't realize just how much was involved. <laughs> Do you know? So um, yeah, it's not like a piece of IKEA furniture where you just slot a couple of wee things in. I'm sure, not quite. But you know, I think she was used to maybe in that stage, just building things. Mm. I think I mentioned to you at one stage, I actually built my first home. That's right, yeah, the bungalow. You know, yeah. and not still standing. I mean, it's, so <laughs> I did something right. There you go. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 So. Anyhow, this, uh, you know, she was used to me building things. That just seemed natural. And, uh, I mean, even the house we're in now, the builder let me put in my own kitchen and bathroom and all that because I wanted it different from he wanted yeah. it, you know. Yeah. And um, even we're in there now, 26, well, coming up to 27 years. And I still, uh, I mean, I'm, I've redone the kitchen uh, once. Yeah. About ten years ago, and it redone the bathroom, did yeah. all sorts of things, and then built in units and all that as we we're going along. So you know there was always something going on. Sure, you know? yeah, yeah, good. So and even now, like we're talking about redecorating some rooms, and that'll be me. Yeah, 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 of course. You know, of so uh, so tell me, um, you know, this is obviously a, an audio show. You know, 
we uh, yeah. the listeners can't see. And you've got some great photos in front of you. Why that plane and why yellow? <laughs> yellow. <laughs> I'll tell you why that was. Because near the end of the project, um, I priced aircraft paint and it was horrendous. <laughs> the the, the actual <laughs> price of it. So working at the cars and stuff, I had a, a mate at a, the car accessory place and I went down to him and said, Jamie, what have you... What paints have you got? Two packs, you know, uh, at reasonable price. Yeah. Tell you what I have. He says, I've Isuzu Cargo Yellow. Uh, he says, I've quite a bit of that. I can let you have that at half price. That'll do. Wow. And it was no more. But having said that, I mean, you can't see it there in that photograph, but there's actually like a jagged, the edges of the wings are scalloped like that, the yeah. black thing. So I was able to, that's why it was yellow. Yeah, because I, I, I think, like I said to you, as soon as you pulled the photo, I said, that's far better looking than I was expecting. If you go, as I say, if you look at the internet for uh, Steen's, S-T-E-E-N, Steen Skybolts, um, you, you'll you see one's fantastically painted. You'll see that one painted in a whole lot of shots. And uh, one of the things that actually... Not so much a surprise, but be annoyed me in a way where I started to see photographs appearing of that plane once I sold it, appearing on the internet with people claiming that they had built it. <laughs> you know, and uh, that's like the equivalent of like getting a bakery to bake a cake and then putting it in front of your guests. Ah, yes, yeah, that's, that's what I made earlier. Right. <laughs> I mean, there was one. There was a terrific. There was a fashion shoot. Um, it was black and white things on it. You know, yeah. black and white pictures. And again, that. That was credited that the plane was built by. Now, it was the model was standing at one stage and just off to the front of the thing. Now, I made the moulds to make that nose coil. You see, yeah. So I could see the the errors that I had left in it. Yes, exactly the same. And it was it was my Brilliant. plane, but uh, you know, once you're selling it, you don't have control oh, of those sure, things. You know. So, okay, building a plane is one thing. Actually, ordering the parts is one thing. Building it's another thing. There is a kind of uh, third and final piece that is perhaps, for me anyway, the most interesting of all, and that is getting in the cockpit and flying it. Well, what was it you're like? Not, you're not strictly speaking, in fact, you're not allowed to, not strictly speaking. You have to have a test, an approved CAA test pilot does the test for you. Ah. Uh, yeah. Now, and he has to do that on his own, and you're not allowed to be in the plane with him. Uh-huh. But Patrick, uh, slight, not slightly different ideas, but he did say to me that night we did the first uh, test flying. He said, um, right now, it's just basically straightforward, simple, straight and level type flying. And he said, uh, we'll, we'll just do taxiing, you know, that's all we'll do tonight. You know, taxiing up and down the runway and getting the feel of the plane. Mm. So he says, um, now the only thing is make sure your harness is tight because he said, under the rules, if I had a bump on the runway and we become airborne, then I have to go for the flight. I can't mm. try and set it down at this stage. Yeah. So I knew what was going to happen there. <laughs> so sure enough, we hit the bump on the runway and then <laughs> um, we were flying. Wow. And... So he flew down the Arnhem Peninsula, down towards Kyrgyzstan and round there. And yeah. 
And he did a few loops in it, and I'm thinking, God, I hope I did put this together properly, you know. <laughs> so he then he asked Belfast Control, Belfast Radio, for permission to do a few loops over Newton Ards Airfield. Yeah. But he didn't tell Newton Ards. So we came back in and he's doing loop after loop <laughs> after loop. Like it's right the whole way down the runway. And uh, then he goes up into the stall, turn, he comes back in. Lands, that me? You know. really oh, broke it in. God, he did. Indeed. So it was, it was memorable, put it like that. And then the chief flying instructor comes running down into the clubhouse. I'm reporting you to the Civil Aviation <laughs> Authority for and but, but Patrick had already got yeah, yeah, permission, yeah, yeah. you know. Yeah. So uh, it was, and I had, I mean, I had my license back at that stage. I was flying, you know, uh, Cessnas and stuff like that. There, this here is a different thing because of the tail wheel thing. Number one, if you look at where the pilot's head is, yeah, there, yeah. that's the P one position. I was in this passenger in that one. Uh, you can't see straight ahead. Yeah. Because you're right there. So when you start to take off, you increase the power and, of course, your engine and your plane starts to go to one side because of the counter-rotation of the prop and all. And you, so you're you're using the rudder to keep yourself straight on the motorway. And then as soon as the tail comes up, you can see the full length of the runway and away you go, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but that there, people, I used to offer people uh, spins in that. And so experienced pilots and I say, no, no, I wouldn't want to. I wouldn't fly in that. Wow. And not because it was home built, because it looked like it, it would be too. The thought I would throw it about in the sky with them yeah, in yeah, it, yeah, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. I did I did about seven hours duel with Patrick. And he was stressing it out because he loved flying the plane. Wow. Because he had been an aerobatic pilot. Ah. And he was a CAA. Yeah. He, he was a CAA uh, test pilot as well. Yeah. Um. I mean, he was working on some fantastic projects for the CAA, you know, yeah. as well as flying. He, fl he flew the jet that easy, uh, what do you call it, Fly B, mm. did on the London Gatwick mm -hmm. mm -hmm. run. Mm -hmm. So it's brilliant. I mean, like a lot of people have, you know, butterflies in their their stomach flying in general. Mm -hmm. What was it like to fly something that you know you'd built? Very comfortable. Interesting. Interesting. I... There was a number of things. I the seats in it in the plans were pretty harsh looking things. So I went to a local scrapyard and bought two seats out of an MG sports car. Oh, of course you did. And Always it, the MG sports. No, it was, cars a, it, was a, it was an MGF okay. sports car, right? Okay, okay. And I then made the frames inside to fit the the material, if you know what I mean, right? Yeah. I had to modify them a good bit, and. It, they were really comfortable. Mm. They were real bucket seats and, uh, you know, you had a five-point point harness and uh, it was, I mean, Gina, uh, that photograph there, that is genuine of Gina actually going up in the aircraft. <laughs> we're, we're just buckling up and I got hers strapped in and then the hood. That was a, a, cha a change I made to the plans. That hood wasn't in the plans. So the plans had to be approved, obviously. So what I that getting approval for that uh, operation of that took me almost eleven months in itself. You know, and uh, was that to just make it so that you weren't outdoors? No, no, that was to that was to test the integrity of it because 
because of the shape of that, you see a figure going like that yeah. causes an upward suction. Yeah. And at full tilt, you'd be there'd be a two hundred pound pull upwards on that canopy. <laughs> right? So uh, I had to come up with also in the articulation of it, it had to come back, go down, and then slide forward into captive areas, you know. And even when they understood what was happening, it still took the time. I think they were trying to talk me out of it, you see. Mm. Because if you see a lot of them on, on, on the thing, they're open cockpits. And I would have actually preferred a, uh, the open cockpit, but the chief flying instructor at the time, Ronnie Barr up at Newton Ards, Ronnie says to me, look, Frankie says, get wise, he says. See, in the, in the, we don't have the weather for open cockpit. He says, yeah. I spent my life yeah. with tiger moths and stuff like that. <laughs> and he says... I was a flying instructor in them, he says, and it is not worth it, he says. It's wow. very unpleasant. Wow. So, you know, so he was right. That that there was much more comfortable. Mm. So you know? do you have a, a favorite flight? Do you have a name for the plane or do you just call it the Skybolt? Just Skybolt. I was going to, I mean, I, <laughs> I was going to put some sort of a logo on the back, sure. you know. Uh, I heard an expression, the dogs. Yeah. And. Um, I was going to put that in French on the back so that, yeah. <laughs> that people wouldn't realise what yeah. I was alluding to. But uh, no, I didn't do that. I didn't. I just, I stuck with what I had. I was not actually, I was not busy flying it because that, uh, there's one there that I showed you in the morning flight, you know, and the plane looks a different colour. But mm. it was the morning, mm-hmm. uh, the sun was just coming up. It was about yeah. half six in the morning. Yeah. And I was, see, I started doing little bits of work around the airfield at planes for people. And uh, so I was up there that morning about half six, took the plane out, and I thought, God, that looks well sitting there. So like this, <laughs> you know? And then um, I I got involved in working at other planes for people, you know, <clears throat> so yeah. that that went on for about a total of about eight years. Fantastic. After I retired. Yeah. So... It was, uh, yeah, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. But when I, I mean, it took me a long time to figure out that a lot of the things that I got out of any of my hobbies was actually making the things. Mm. Um, so, you know, that I, I, I flew that for five years and uh, they, it was just, when I look back on it, um, I thought that was right, and it's it's, it's actually the same. <clears throat> as, you're not going to believe this, but uh, with the music, uh, I would love to be a better guitarist. Mm-hmm. I'd love to be a Eddie Van Halen or Eric Clapton or something like that. There, but I'm never going to be. Yeah, and uh, I've, I've realised that now. <laughs> but what I do know is, I could sit down in a room full of people with an acoustic guitar. And have them just really bobbing, no liking the music, you know. So a friend of mine who's long time in the business said to me, "Yeah, but he says that's you." He said, "You're an entertainer. You're not. You're not a musician." Mm. Now I felt slightly slighted by that. (laughs) I have to admit, but it is probably true. And it's the same way with a bit like this here. There's a bit like, "Oh, look at me! Look what I've done." You know, and that's self-analysis is a bad thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, but as I said, there were, and it's not just a one-off 
there's a whole organisation around home-built aircrafts that people are totally unaware of. Mm. And there's a man in Northern Ireland who was behind so many projects, Noel O'Neill. And Noel had a hangar and he's... A lot of thing that puts, things that put, one of the things that puts people off uh, having their own aircraft is costs, maintenance mm-hmm. and all that. Mm-hmm. So what Noel did way back in the 60s, he got a group of aircraft owners together. He got uh, inspectors who worked for British Airways and British Midland and all would, would they do work for him in the evenings after their own work, paid for, of course. And the owners then could thre- theoretically do their own maintenance. Wow. And uh, that was, so he set, started all that. So, and he was responsible for the club. It went bust a couple of times and each time he was bringing it back, you know, didn't get much thanks for it, but he did. So he also, if, if you wanted to contact anyone, you have got to have an inspector who's signing off every stage of your build, right? The, the must see the release notes of the material that it complies with the international standards. They have to see, you can't close up a structure before they can see inside and make, and give it the okay. So there was several inspectors involved with me in the build of that. Uh, there was one guy, the original inspector, George. George uh, then took ill and um, I got another guy, Ernie, Ernie, my, my head's away, but Ernie, he took over the inspecting job. And then the final sign-off, well, it was Ernie did the final sign-off. And uh, it was, I mean, so everything is checked out. The Popular Flying Association actually flew over and had a look at the plane as well. Wow. So, but to do that, they're supposed to do that anyway. Aye, sure. But they, they they flew in and I took them for a spin and the guy was <laughs> spinning, uh, Ken. Uh, and uh, yeah, it, 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 it was fine. And people looked at that plane and thought, I know, as I said, I don't think I would fly that. I, I, that there was the easiest thing I ever flew. Wow. I could set that down anywhere on the runway without the slightest bit of bother. <laughs> and, do you know, and, and I wasn't a big time pilot, but it just was, you give you such a level of confidence. Mm. There was a point during the project that I thought I wouldn't have had the money to, to complete it. Mm-hmm. Part of that was what I expected to pay for an engine. And I think, you know, the, the, that was, we bought that engine off the RAF at an auction in London. And um, when I said to a number of people that I was thinking of ending the project, they I started getting calls all over the place, people looking to buy it. And they, and I realized, so hold on a minute, if they all want it, mm. it's worth my while finishing this. Absolutely. So yeah. that was, you know, thinking. But I don't know if, I, sometimes I think I hide my head in the sand a bit. Yeah. And just go on. Do you know? A bit like that. So, I mean, did you flip a profit on it? I did. That's impressive. It's, uh, and I'll tell you about it, not the guy, guys who bought it off me made a profit as well. <laughs> but their, their market is England. Yeah, of course. You know, it's like cars. So, it's more. Yeah. yeah. 
Oh, no, I, I mean, I... Sorry, this is something else. I just finished about two years ago, just finished rebuilding a Series 3 Land Rover. Right. <laughs> God, you know. So, um, and that, now, again, I I made a profit on that, a good profit on it. Mm-hmm. But the guy I sold it to was a dealer in England who Brilliant. already had a client for it in, the, in Suffolk. Brilliant. And he was, and he would have made at least as much out of it as I did, you that's know. Class. Very so good. So that's just a. So the um, kind of flip side to the, the last question. Um, so you told us, you know, some of the challenging moments. What about the greatest success you've experienced so far, or the most successful moment? Something you're proud of? I was proud of the Skybolt, but I don't know. I was. Um, I don't think, I'm not sure pride really even comes into it because I feel huge satisfaction at finishing something like that. And I suppose that's um, that's about as much as, you know, I, I, I don't think, I didn't go berserk and splash out champagne and all that sort of <laughs> stuff, you know. But I did honestly uh, feel a high level of satisfaction with that. Because from when I was young, I used to read books about World War One, World War Two pilots and all this sort of stuff. And uh, you, you just thought, and because that, when I look at a book and I see a little uh, inset of a Tiger Moth aircraft, I think, now that's an aircraft, mm-hmm. you see. And in a way, if I could have bought, afforded and bought a, a Tiger Moth, but I couldn't have. So to me, that was the nearest thing. It's brilliant. You know? It's class. If you could take anyone from Northern Ireland, and I mean anyone, dead or alive, out for a cup of coffee or a pint or out for dinner, whatever you want, who would you take? Where would you take them and why? Oh. It would have to be Noel O'Neill. Mm-hmm. Because Noel, and it would be a cup of coffee because Noel doesn't drink, <laughs> but it would it would definitely be Noel because I think he has contributed more to the aviation side in Northern Ireland than anyone I know. Mm. Now, there may be other people who have done more, but I don't know about them. Mm-hmm. So that would be who I would, who I would take out. It's brilliant. Two kind of silly quickfire ones. Uh, where's your favourite food takeaway place in Northern Ireland? I don't have one. I make most of our own meals myself. Love it. And actually, I've gone off take takeaways for a long, yeah. long time. Yeah. You know? What's your favorite home cooked meal then? Favorite home cooked meal is usually something with spaghetti, a pasta in it. Sorry, mm. uh, pan pasta usually. And um, there's several. I mean, there's one with avocado and smoked salmon and. Uh, any type of fusilli or pan pasta, you know. And uh, I like those with a glass of red wine. Tasty. What type of wine do you like? I favor reds. Yeah. Um, Dry, sweet? Sort of medium. I'm not too, I don't go no. for too much for the very sweet ones. Um, I like a Shiraz Merlot, basically, yeah. you know. Yeah, great. Uh, favorite place to get ice cream in Northern Ireland? <laughs> <laughs> uh, it doesn't... It has to be McCarry's 
ice cream shop mm, in Armagh. There you go. That's what I'm looking for. I like that. The you know, carries. Yes. Brilliant. Yeah. I'll do, Favorite do. flavor? Oh, just the straight vanilla. But he does, uh, he does uh, what he calls marshmallow ice cream, oh, which is fantastic. Unreal. And uh, one of my daughters used to uh, visit his daughter on a Saturday. You know, now called, they call it play dates now, yeah, I believe. Yeah, the American yeah. way. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, when I used to go to pick her up, Amy McCarry would be making up the <sighs> uh, tubs of uh, Vanilla ice cream for the, the for the next morning yeah, and yeah. Uh, the and the marshmallow as well, you know. Oh. So uh, that was definitely. See, my wife has a has an Italian influence. I see. Gina isn't just by accident, you know. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. But uh, her mother was full Italian, and her father was uh, Irish. Wow. And uh, you know so. That's really a I like bit, it. you know. I like that. Uh, look, Frank, this has been awesome. I've really, really enjoyed this. Oh. Um, there's a final question that we always usually, I actually do usually use the word land the plane, but in this context, it feels a bit forced. Uh, but, you know, the final question that we uh, always end on is, you know, if you could jump into some sort of a time machine, uh, and, you know, there was no weird kind of knock-on butterfly effects. Uh, and you had a few minutes of 18-year-old Frank's time. Mm -hmm. What sort of things would you say to him? Apart from why up. Uh, that can be the, part of it. <laughs> that can be part of it. And, and also, um, take advantage of all the help that people give you. I used to be suspicious a bit, you know, mm. but uh, I'd say, yeah. And uh, now I'm just, uh, no, I better not say it. There was, there was, there was, there was an expression um, about, um, you know, advice you give your children, you know. Yeah. But I'd rather not say it on air. Okay. <laughs> Awesome. Frank, thank you so much for your time. I uh, really, really appreciate you. Not at all. Coming to Ormo Bass, meeting us in the studio and uh, for sharing everything you shared. Uh, you've got a great story and uh, you tell it well as well, which is sometimes half a battle. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Cheers. Okay. Tell me when we're offline. <laughs> awesome stuff. We've been at the end there that was uh, for... Uh, private ears only <laughs> i don't know what I, what i wanted to say there private ears who the heck's that uh but yeah i really hope that you enjoyed today's episode uh it was a real pleasure meeting frank had a lovely time just uh getting to hear his story find out a bit more about him and uh oh man what a story what a guy uh what a great uh example of just kind of some of the amazing albeit very random uh stories that are from this part of the world so yeah, like I said at the start, if you have not checked out our documentary on Lillian Bland yet, the first woman in the world to design, build, and fly her own airplane, I uh, highly recommend going and checking that out. You can check it out at bestofbelfast.org, or you can just go back to last week's episode in your podcast app, if that's where you're listening to this. And um, yeah, really hope you enjoy it. We put a lot of work into it. It's part of a six-part series 
we're doing in collaboration with the Belfast Buildings Trust and the National Heritage Lottery Fund. I am working with a really, really fab producer on the series as well, a guy called Owen McFadden, and he is the audio engineering editing wizard um, that uh, takes it up to a whole new different level from these kind of very casual conversations uh, like that I usually do by myself, just like the one you heard. Uh, it's a real kind of storytelling piece, loads of sound effects, loads of fast cuts, you know, 10 different voices in it. Okay, I don't know if it's 10. It might be between six and eight. <laughs> but you get the drift. Awesome music. And yeah, uh, hopefully that very weak seal uh, was enough for you to want to go and check it out. It's all about blue plaques, you know? You know the wee blue plaques on the side of buildings that uh, remember interesting people from history? The series is all about that. Lillian's one of those people. All right, there you go. Thanks so much for spending this time with us. I really appreciate you uh, tuning in today. And as always, um, you can find out over 170 interesting conversations, just like the one you've heard today over at bestofbelfast.org or on your favorite podcast app. Simply search Belfast. And until next time you tune in, whether it is right now, straight after this one ends, or whether it's next week, or whether it's in a couple of months, uh, really, really appreciate you. Thanks so much for all of your support and hope you have a class rest of your day, week, month, year, decade, and so on. Awesome. Cheers. Hi, everyone. I'm Claire Dodge, GM of Ormo Baths, a tech hub and co-working facility based in the historic Victorian bathhouse in the heart of Belfast city centre. Back in the good old days, Best of Belfast was my commute entertainment. Listening to the inspiring stories of Northern Irish people following their dreams and making magic happen was a great start or end to my day. Now that I've been working from home, I've kept up the same routine and it's a great way for me to continue to brighten my days. My favourite episode, well, it has to be from one of our dear members of our Omabaz community, Mr. Mark Todd. It was really inspiring and it just made me feel very peaceful at rest and happy knowing that there's excellent people doing excellent things within Northern Ireland. It is our delight and our pleasure to have Best of Belfast based out of the Armo Baths and we're excited about what's coming next. So if you've been on the fence about joining the Producers Club and would miss Best of Belfast if it wasn't here, I'd highly recommend you joining today. Pop on over to bestofbelfast.org and I look forward to seeing you in our WhatsApp group very soon.